Welcome everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and uh, boy, I'm I'm particularly excited about my guests um, for today. Um, Richard Miller, who I had the wonderful good fortune of spending some time with in Santa Rosa, um, a, I think a year and a half ago. Um, I was doing a Dream Yoga program, and Richard was gracious enough to actually attend the darn thing. That's really impressive. And, <laughs> and then and then we had a beautiful lunch together, and I immediately fell in love with this amazing gentleman. Um, Richard, you know, your work has inspired me for the longest time and, and to actually meet you in person and realize you're, you're as genuine and elegant as you are and written in the spoken words. It really touched me. And so um, for our listeners, I want to introduce Richard formally by reading his bio. And then, oh my gosh, we have so many common areas uh, where we can launch into, I think, I think, some fruitful discussion. So I can't wait. So here's Richard. Richard Miller, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, author, researcher, yogic scholar, and spiritual teacher who, for the past 47 years, has devoted his life to integrating Western psychology and neuroscience with the ancient wisdom teachings of yoga, tantra, advaita, Taoism, and Buddhism. Developer of the research-based program Integrative Restoration-IREST Yoga Nidra Meditation, Richard is a founding president of the IREST Institute, co-founder of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, past founding president of the Institute for Spirituality and Psychology. He is the author of IREST Meditation, the IREST Program for Healing PTSD, and Yoga Nidra, the Meditative Heart of Yoga. Richard leads retreats and trainings internationally, emphasizing enlightened living in daily life. And so, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, wow, where to start? Let's start with a personal question, if you don't mind. And that is, how did the um, rich topic of yoga nidra, and, and I will um, define that briefly, but I'm sure you're going to unpack it in, in greater detail. But for our listeners, nidra is is a, um, basically sleep, and yoga nidra is a, a sleep yoga. But as you'll see, it's much more than what you may think it is. So share with us a little bit how you found your way into this um, extraordinary discipline. Sure, happy to do. And first, just it's a delight to be here with you as you were mentioning we got together in Santa Rosa when you were giving one of your weekends on dream yoga, and I was really delighted to be there and have some time with you and get to know you. So I'm delighted to be here with you today. Fantastic. Uh, yoga Nidra, interesting. It's thousands of years old. It's an ancient form of meditative inquiry, we might say. And while Nidra, the word actually means sleep, I take it to be a changing state of consciousness. And the word yoga goes by many definitions. The one that I like to use is our embodied somatic experience of the underlying essence that connects the entire cosmos, I would say, that gives birth to all the expressions, you, me, the rocks, the trees, and the planets all around us. So yoga nidra for me, means to have that embodied understanding of the unification of everything, their, their non-separateness, no matter the changing state of consciousness that we're in. 
So that could be states during waking, um, happiness, sadness, grief, anger, joy, or the states that arise during dreaming and dreamlessness, dream sleep, dreamless sleep. So yoga nidra is a meditation that helps us basically navigate all the changing states of consciousness, knowing ourselves as something that doesn't change, that's a constant. And I originally ran into the practice in 1970. And when I was first in San Francisco, I was new to the Bay Area and I wanted to meet people. So I ended up in a yoga class trying to meet some people. And it turns out it was taught in silence. So I never met a soul during the 12 weeks of the class because we came in and left in silence. But at the end of the first class, I like to say I met myself. The teacher gave us what I now know was a rudimentary IRest or not IRest, but yoga nidra practice. And I had the most profound, I would say, experience of feeling myself as one with the entire universe. And walked out of the class as I went home just feeling like what just happened and how can I understand this and that launched me into the next what almost 50 years now studying the the meditation and incorporating it into everything that I do it's been a marvelous journey wow that's that's uh, the, the resonance the confluence is already remarkable Richard because when I um, had my first experience of transcendental meditation, which is, you know, was derived from the Hindu tradition. Um, a similar type of thing. I, I did TM initially as a way to work with uh, hypertension. I was a stressed out undergraduate doing a double degree in, in, in science and music and diagnosed with, uh, you know, high blood pressure. And so back then, um, there wasn't a whole lot of meditation on campus, so to speak, but I, I do remember reading some studies, preliminary studies about how TM could work with things like hypertension. And so I went to my first TM um, instruction section session and, um, you know, pure beginner's luck, I, I just descended through the mantra that was given to me into this, mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, samadhi, this meditative absorption that prior to that time, I had no idea was even possible. And, and exactly like you, Richard, I, I came out of that space you know, enter, entered a state of utter non-thought, complete tranquility and peace, meditative absorption, and came out of it uh, just a completely different person and then spent the next 10 years, like you, trying to figure out what the heck was that? Yeah. How, how can I stabilize it? Where can I go with it? And, and what you say really resonates with me, um, and it, it's, it's highly resonant for our listeners with what we are exploring in our arena under the rubric of, of sleep yoga um, or what the Tibetans refer to as luminosity yoga, which is highly uh, analogous to what Richard is talking about and I'm sure what we'll be unpacking and that is about descending into that part of you that doesn't change, quite literally what the Buddhists refer to as the changeless nature. And I could not agree more with you, Richard, that by becoming one with yourself, you will find yourself becoming one with the cosmos, that they're fundamentally inseparable, and that I have discovered that the farther you go into yourself, um, into your body, actually, this idea of waking down, um, that you find that your body becomes replaced with the body of the universe. You, you personally, quote-unquote, become nothing, but in so doing, you, big you, um, becomes everything. And well, that's 
Yeah, that's the feeling I went when I walked into that first class feeling pretty much disconnected from myself and the world. And I walked out totally connected to myself and that sense of oneness with the entire cosmos. And it was an extraordinary, life-changing event. Yeah, it's a twofer, isn't it? It's it's a major twofer. <laughs> yeah, it's a twofer. <laughs> not only not only do you find out who the heck you are, and John Kabat-Zinn says something so beautifully here. You know, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction, he says, you know, when you when you discover who you are and what the mind is, you have beauty, the arts, poetry, music. If you don't discover who you are and what the mind is, you have Auschwitz. And um, I, I thought there was a really pointed way of talking about how important it is um, to, as, as, as um, I think it was Plato, you know, know thyself. And, and the charter that the psycho-spiritual traditions have offered to you, um, and also to me, I think has just been one of the great gifts. So, well, you, you so, used an interesting word a few minutes ago or moments ago. You used the word waking down, and I actually use it in four versions of that. To me, the first is waking in, where we're really getting to know ourselves and the familiarity with our body, our senses, our emotions, our thoughts. So we really feel ourselves as an integrated human being. The second part I think of is waking up or where we're really integrating this sense of unity with the cosmos. And then I think of waking down as that integration of that very transcendental view down into our very personal experience all day long, where we're really experiencing that sense of unit of consciousness, no matter who we're with or what we're doing. And then I have a fourth phase waking out where we take it into the workplace, our relationships and to me, that's where the real work is as we bring it into the everyday workplace. Yeah, and that's and that's what really impresses me about about what you're doing, Richard, is um, the extraordinary comprehensive quality of this journey that um, we go into ourselves to fundamentally come back out um, for the benefit of others. And, and I'm so thrilled when I read over your work that you know, the kind of translational quality of your research, as scientists put it, that you're not just um, putting out data for publication and text, you're doing your research as a way to translate it literally into working with veterans and victims of PTSD and stress. And and so it, it, to me, it's a really inspiring way to conjoin not only psych, psych, uh, psychology and spirituality, but also those two in the service of the betterment of, of the world and the betterment of others. And to me, it's this kind of completely integrated kind of systemic approach that is um, quite inspiring and, and just certainly resonant with what we're trying to do with our little charter with my club um, and also with, you know, I could say the charter of my own life. And so so just yeah, please say more, um, you know, about what, for instance, iRest is. Um, if, if you're comfortable sharing with our listeners... Sure. Um, tell us a little bit about this, because the more I learned about it, the more fascinated and intrigued I became with it. Well, it, it made sense as I was studying in the 70s, this protocol I'll call Yoga Nidra. And it came from the Eastern tradition, which really don't address how to work with our emotions and thoughts. They're really talking about letting go of thoughts and then trying to find the more transcendental aspect of our nature. 
But it occurred to me that it was really important that we have that integration of both what the Eastern brings to us and what Western, say, psychology offers us in terms of becoming an integrated human being, not just a transcendent being. So as I was studying the teachings that I was getting from the East, and I had a number of teachers who were both here in the United States, and I was fortunate I traveled to India on a number of occasions and met some extraordinary teachers there, that I began to cull away, I would call the Eastern um, kind of archetypal aspects to the meditation practice. And I was looking at how could I bring this really to a Westerner? And two of my uh, Indian teachers both said, look, we're Indian, we're from a different culture, you're a Westerner, so you really need to make this your own and bring it to the West. So that's what I started to do in the 70s. And in the uh, 2004, I actually was approached by Walter Reed Army Medical Center, who asked if I would do a research study with uh, active duty coming back from the war fronts with tremendous post-traumatic stress. And so I entered into a study, but they asked if I would lose the name Yoga Nidra. I, I have a wonderful <laughs> video of a Marine saying, look, we're Marines. Uh, yoga is for sissies. We don't do meditation. <laughs> Call it something else. Right. So I renamed it Integrative Restoration because I think it integrates our psychology and helps us really to become a grounded human being on friendly terms with our body, senses, and mind, and emotions. And restoration because I feel it restores this innate quality of underlying unit of consciousness. And back in 2004, everything was iPads and iPhones, so why not I rest with a small little eye that puts the sense of self in its proper position to this larger unitive consciousness. And the military loved that. They said, hey, we can do IRAS. So we entered into a study. It was so successful since 2006. Anybody going through their healing regimen at Walter Reed has access to this protocol I created. And then I went on to research it at Miami VA and Brook Army Medical Center and university setting. So I've been able to get research studies, fortunately, looking at how this particular program works with everything from post-traumatic stress to anxiety to sleep and resiliency and well-being. I even did a couple of studies with um, cello players to see if we can help them reduce their stress in their shoulders when they were uh, playing the cello, which successfully was the truth. Um, but the program, I really tried to look at how could I bring this to what I call the non-choir, because in the 70s, everybody who was coming to me was interested in meditation and yoga, but I was thinking this has far-reaching benefits, so I've been able now to bring it into homeless shelters, work with women rescued from human trafficking, veterans, children as young as three in schools to hospice and end-of-life care. And I call it I rest Yoga Nidra Meditation uh, for a reason. One is the military came back to me a couple of years after we started the study, and they said, you know, we like what you're doing, so you can call it anything you want. <laughs> so I like I rest because then I can go into a homeless shelter or a hospital, and I'm teaching I rest. If I go to a 
Buddhist meditation center, I teach meditation. And if I go into a yoga center, I'm teaching yoga nidra. The, the words just give me access to the community. Because if I go to a hospital and I say, I'm going to teach you yoga nidra, they're going to say, so what is that? But if I teach them the program as I rest, then they start to ask, well, where did it come from? And then I can talk about yoga nidra, but then we're all on the same page. So I think the wording is important. It gives us access to populations and communities I might not otherwise gain access to if I were just saying I was teaching meditation. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the the brilliance that John Kabat-Zinn came up with when he discovered the extraordinary power of Buddhist meditation to work with chronic pain um, and realized that he couldn't approach it in exactly the same way you discovered using kind of classic nomenclature. And of course, then he came up with a more clinically oriented MBSR. Exactly. Uh, which is, uh, you know, it's completely analogous and, and, and good for you for having that kind of sensitivity. Because for me, Richard, this is the very definition of upaya or skillful means is, you know, not coming in like a bowling ball and, and either bowling people over or converting them to your ideologies and whatnot, but really listening um, and meaning people eye to eye where they're at, using the vocabulary that speaks to them. Um, and that's the way they, obviously the way they connect, they resonate and, and good for you for having that kind of sensitivity um, and obviously to, to great success. And so to whatever extent um, feels appropriate is, can you give our listeners um, a sense of some of the stages of this kind yeah. of process? Well, the the first thing is the emphasis is really on learning how to be with the changing states of consciousness in our body and our mind so that we're able to navigate them without getting caught in them. So one of the main principles underlying the practice is what I call welcoming. So we're learning how to be with whatever is arising not to try to change it or get rid of it, but to listen to it as a messenger that's trying to help us on our way through our life. So the first three aspects of the program, I've created it as a 10-step program that's embedded in a larger 38-stage map of meditation that comes from the ancient tradition that I'm following. But the first three steps of the program, as I've created it as a simple program that can be taken into hospitals or clinics or meditation centers. We're really looking at um, helping a person right from the start experience a sense of innate wholeness or well-being that's unshakable. I call it indestructible that we have within us, but we may have been encultured out of or through our life experiences forgotten, lost touch with. So I introduce that through a number of different um, inquiries, we might say, that are really trying to help a person really feel it in their body, a sense of essential wholeness, I call it, of being. And then out of that, helping a person feel the different intentions that are bringing them to meditation. So short term, what do they wish to get out of the meditation and then long term how would they like this to influence their overall life over the course of their entire lifetime so with that kind of ground or foundation the next two steps 
I call body sensing and breath sensing, where we're introducing different techniques to really awaken the intelligence of the body and help people really mine the information that's coming to us through our body somatically. So it's really a grounded somatic felt sense we're, we're developing through these two stages of the practice. Then we have two stages, one that addresses emotions and helping a person learn how to be with their emotions. And then another stage where we're working primarily with cognitions, thoughts, memories, beliefs, and imagery that otherwise people can get caught in, uh, ruminating in, recursively cycling around in. So we're teaching basically six ways of working with emotions and thoughts and memories to help break the kind of cycle that we get caught in in the thinking mind and really help move through them so that we're really responding to them and using them, as I said, as messengers to help us on our way. So like anger, taking anger or irritation, it's a messenger that's helping us potentially see an underlying expectation we might be having of how things should be, how we'd like them to be. But in fact, life is offering us something different. And so the anger, if we use it as a messenger, is helping us see the expectation then we let the expectation be set aside and we can meet life on its own terms. So we work with emotions, thoughts, and then we have a whole segment where we really try to mine joy mm-hmm. as a vitamin J, I call it, or a, an innate sense of well-being that's independent of our circumstance. So a lot of people know joy because they get a new car or they get a something to eat that's delicious. We're talking about joy that's innate in the body, that's independent of our circumstance, that we can feel whether we are feeling good and happy, or we could feel that joy even in the midst of a difficult moment of grief or uh, sadness. And then we have a whole segment where we are developing what we call perspective or the ability to rest as unchanging awareness amidst these changing phenomena so that we're learning that we are something more than these changing circumstances. And that perspective allows us to be with things in a way we might not ordinarily have been able to be with. And the final stage is, as one of my teachers said, taking the car for a test drive. We (laughs) learn the skills on the mat, and then we take them for a test drive out into our relationships, our work experiences, out into the world, and then go back and forth, back to the mat, relearning, going back out into life, putting them into practice. So it becomes... I call it a toolkit for life or the owner's manual we never got as kids that are teaching us how to navigate all these ins and outs of life. But once we've learned how to navigate life, then really this aspect of awakening to this deeper, higher, whatever you want to say, consciousness that's unchanging, that really gives us a sense of an underlying unity with everything around us and I like to say, because people ask, well, why would I want that? And I say, well, 
when you realize that everything you're looking at is essentially yourself in different clothing, while you can celebrate difference, you can no longer do violence or war because it doesn't make any sense anymore to go to war with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as a, an aside, when I, when I went to the military and they asked me if our soldiers do this program, what's going to happen? And I remember thinking to myself, do I tell them the truth? And I realized we're going to find out anyway. And I said, well, some of them are going to drop their weapons because they realize the people on the other side of the battlefield are their cousins, uncles, aunts. They're they're themselves in different clothing. The others are going to, as warriors who need to do a job, fight the battle, but not out of anger or hatred, but out of a job to do. And then as soon as it's over, they'll drop their weapons. They'll go across the battlefield and help the very people that they were just fighting against. And the head of the military who was in the meeting looked at me after I stopped talking, and he said, that's exactly what we want to hear. Oh, my goodness. And we got into a long, protracted conversation on meditation, the Bhagavad Gita, war, peace. It was extraordinary, actually, the hair on my arms and the back of my neck actually stood up as we were talking because I was so taken by his response to me. Oh my gosh, which is, I actually sends a chill up my back even you sharing that. that that's amazing. Wow, what a rich offering. I, I have some comments and also questions in relation to what you said here. First of all, thank you. One is, you know, in the vocabulary of what I'm referring to is the nocturnal meditations, which Richard, I, I define as, yes. uh, you know, lucid dreaming, dream mm-hmm. yoga, sleep yoga, and then bardo yoga. Um, the, you know, the fundamental theme is lucidity, which of course, as you know, is it's just this kind of code word for awareness. And so when you talk about your charter as being one of navigating states without being caught up in them, I mean, that is the precise definition of lucidity. Well, actually, I'm really excited about this as a potential conversation with you and I, because I'm aware, you know, most people come to these practices and they're just learning how to do life during the waking life, let alone dream. But we've noticed that there's a whole nother dimension to meditation that opens up at night or when we go to sleep. And I'd be curious your reflections, which is as I'm doing this practice and I actually teach it first lying down to people. And actually, Mm -hmm. I say this may be the only meditation you're being taught that I'm asking you to actually let the body go to sleep. And I'm aware that each of the states of consciousness during the waking life, sadness, anger, happiness, um, well-being, joy, they all have to me signatures in the body that we can learn how to recognize and then learn how to be with them and navigate them. But I'm finding the same thing at sleep. When each of the sleep stages starts, like the initial hypnagogia, when we get kind of weird imagery and we're starting to uh, step down into the first stage of sleep, to me it has its own signature that I've been able to recognize. And so by recognizing it, I can say, oh, here's hypnagogy and not get caught in it, but maintain what you're saying is that lucidity. And then watch as stage one and two and three and 
each of them for me has a signature that if we're able to recognize it, we don't get caught in it. And then, as you know, we can find ourselves totally lucid in the sleep state. And as I tell people in my classes, if you hear somebody snoring, just be aware it might be you, but don't try to wake yourself up. Just realize your body's sleeping in you and you're the one in whom the body is sleeping. You're not asleep. The body's asleep. Yeah, that's fantastic. And really what you're saying is is completely dovetailing into what we're, what you were talking about earlier. And that is that when we learn how to maintain lucidity through all states of consciousness as we go from gross to subtle to very subtle. And, you know, I talk about this, Richard, as replacing the Western light switch model of consciousness where it's either awake, asleep, um, you know, alive, dead, yes, no, black, white. We're replacing that kind of gross linear model, um, Western linear model with a Eastern dimmer where we're just going from gross to subtle to very subtle. Mm-hmm. And, then, yeah. and then so by becoming lucid through the descent that you're referring to, literally referred to as lucid sleep onset, then that dovetails back beautifully to what you're talking about earlier. That same proficiency then allows us to maintain lucidity or awareness and navigate all states of consciousness, even within the waking state. So we use this kind of bidirectional tenet where the lucidity that you're talking about, navigating states without being caught in them during the day, translates into a similar proficiency to maintaining lucidity um, through different states of consciousness altogether until you reach the fundamental point that, that you're referring to that I want to get back to. But I want to put a hold on for just a second because I think that is so subtle, deep, and profound that that will be our, our platform for our next set of um, discussions here. But what I wanted to further comment on, Richard, was how it is that these methods of inquiry that you're referring to are completely resonant with my experience in, in the Buddhist contemplative traditions I'm using insight meditations, analytic meditations, and the like, where it's so skillful to me that I sometimes think of it as the, the great masters, they're like very skilled attorneys, where they, they lead the witness with these incredibly powerful questions. Um, as you know, the Ramana Maharshi typified really as the archetypal um, question of his entire spiritual path, which is like, you know, who am I? And so by asking the right questions, the mind is led in the proper direction. And, and then that, that um, allows the discoverer to um, empower their discoveries, that they're not just being spoon-fed these realizations, they're actually being led into these realizations themselves. And that's where the juice comes from. That's where the real power comes from. And the fact that you connect this to the body, oh my gosh, is that um, also completely in line with my charter with this work? Because For me, as you put in your own work, body and mind um, are not different. I I would say in kind of a Zen fashion, they're not different, but they're also not the same. You know, there's some middle ground between the two. But what I'm trying to get at here is that um, it's not just lucid mind, or I should say non-lucid mind, that we work with in these nocturnal practices, but Non-lucid mind is supported by non-lucid body. And so by waking up the body, turning the body, um, especially via the the inner subtle yoga processes, lucid body that eventually, and again, in this kind of bidirectional theme, works to awaken mind. And so we use, it's a bidirectional process. We can use mind to wake up body and we can use body to wake up mind. And why not use both? We have these, we have these resources and and why not, again, another twofer, why not? Why not use both 
gross body um, and subtle body, and then also very subtle body to um, invoke qualities of lucidity with subtle and then extremely subtle states of mind. Well, I, I think of the of the um, metaphor, the two wings of the bird. If we only use one wing, we're going to go around in circles. So if we're only coming from the mind, we're going to go in circles. If we're only coming from the body, we may go in circles. It's when we bring the two together, this kind of wisdom and somatic uh, quality of the body allows us to really fly straight and true. Yes, exactly. And this this is why, you know, I'm, I'm such a big fan of holistic or these days the, the common jargon is, you know, integral studies where use the best of the East and West, use the best of the day and the nighttime mind, um, use the best of the body and, and the mind. Um, well, because now I've come to appreciate um, more recently because of all my work with trauma is stress and we can put it on a continuum, just the phone ringing and you're starting to get startled when the phone rings too much or your child is baby and waking you up all night long. You, you get a kind of a stress syndrome going over on one part of the continuum. On the other end are the soldiers I've worked with or people who have been through car accidents or childhood trauma. The body is in a kind of a heightened, vigilant alertness. And as the body starts to go to sleep, it won't allow the body to completely go into that deep, restful sleep or go into REM where we know we process a lot of the emotional issues that we've had during the day. And so I, I find people with trauma often don't get good rest when they do these programs like we're talking about, the iRest, they'll often report after their first or second session, they get their first good night's sleep in years. And I think it's because we're helping them, as one person said, go off guard duty yeah. and really help the body rest somatically and begin to process the undigested material that happens to us often during the day, which sleep is so critical for that kind of integrative healing um, yeah body is so important to that and i think this is why uh, and we can talk a little bit about how you juxtapose the teachings on the koshas here the sheaths because for me richard this is why it's so incredibly important in these journeys to have a decent map of both body and mind because um if we don't understand that the foundation of our body and our mind, and you intimated this, but I want to point it out a little bit more explicitly because I think this is incredibly important, um, both spiritually and then very practically with working like things with things like trauma and undigested experience. And that is that if we have a deep doctrinal and then eventually experiential um, understanding that the very core of our body mind matrix is is divine, it's pure in um, Shambhala tradition is referred to as you know basic goodness. If we if we know in our um, bones that the, the core of where we're going below the residue of all this trauma, below the residue of what I call the domain of spiders and snakes, you know where where we have all the repressed elements of the relative unconscious mind. That if we know below that the spiders and snakes are replaced by, you know, I, I playfully refer to as sages and saints. Mm -hmm. That actually deep within us is this absolute perfect purity and goodness. Then not only will we have the, the courage 
to um, go into these spaces um, because we realize that these intermediate bandwidths of unwanted experience are not really who we are, but it will allow us fundamentally when that's worked through to breathe a massive um, kind of sigh of spiritual release and let go into this fundamental, this double entendre, this fundamental bed of mind and body that is in fact the type of goodness and non-duality that you were referring to earlier. And so I, I love the way, maybe we can say a little bit about this because you you talked about some of the traditions that informed you the most. And I know Advaita Vedanta is one, I know Kashmir Shaivism is another. And you draw very beautifully on this notion of the of the she, so the koshas. Um, so if, if that feels like the right direction for us to go, how, how do you engage that with both your spiritual personal work and with your clients? Well, I've been influenced, as you say, by the yoga traditions, by the Advaitic traditions, Kashmir Shaivism, non-dualism, but I also sat many years in a Mahayana Buddhist tradition and in a Zen tradition. And at one point, I was on my way to become a Presbyterian Episcopalian minister. So I've done a lot of work in different uh, spiritual perspectives. Um, when I encountered Yoga Nidra and I started really exploring it, and as you bring up the idea of the koshas, kosha meaning a sheath that we identify with and we can think that it is all we are. So in Yoga Nidra, we're actually asking a person to explore in turn, uh, for me, six different sheaths. There's a five sheath model and I've added a sixth actually sheath to it in the the first sheath is the body. So many people will say, you know, I've got a broken arm. Or uh, if you go into a medical setting, they'll talk to you as if you, you're, you've got cancer. And I say, the body's got cancer, but I don't. That's right. Or when somebody says, how old are you? I say, well, I'm outside of time. But if you're asking how, how, how old the body is, okay, it's 71. Yeah. So we're really inquiring into that first stage, what is the body? And I like what you said, they're forms of questions of self-inquiry where we're not taking on a new belief. We're really trying to explore it and discover for ourselves. oh my goodness, I have a body. The body you know, goes through all these states of change, but if I look inside, I feel like I'm not just this body, I'm this unchanging essence. Then we do the same thing for what I call the energy body. So I have a whole set of exercises, which instead of doing them physically, moving the physical body, I have people come into what we call the imaginary dream body or, or energy body. And so we can have people lifting their arm where they really do feel an arm is lifting, but the physical arm isn't moving at all. And I've found this extremely helpful for people who had limb amputations where I'm asking them to move the arm that has been um, removed, but in fact, they have phantom arm pain. And as they learn to move the energy arm rather than the physical arm, which is no longer present, the actual phantom pain goes away. Yeah. It actually energizes a whole new set of experiences in their in their energy body that gets them through the pain. So we do that with the energy body, that's the pranamaya kosha. Then we do the same thing 
with the emotional body and the thought body and the joy body, we're learning, oh, anger is present. The body has anger. Anger is present. I'm aware of the anger. I can feel the anger, but I'm more than the anger. I am this unchanging aspect. And to really understand um, the difference between saying I'm angry and saying anger is present. And I, you know, I tell my students, you know, if you really get this, you're not going to go out and and somebody says, how are you feeling? You're not going to say, well, anger is present. You're going to say, well, I'm feeling a bit irritable today. But inside the experience is anger is present, Mm -hmm. just like um, hunger is present. So I, I like to make the joke. Maybe I'll call you up after our conversation. I'll say, going to dinner is wanting to happen here. What's wanting to happen over there? Beautiful. Because <laughs> I, I think that's more the reality. Hunger is present, but the I thought tends to fixate on it, bind to it, which is its job, and say, I'm hungry, when in fact it's just hunger is present. That's right. So by learning how to disidentify from these different sheaths, we are able to have our experience, the hunger, the irritableness, the grief, the sadness, the joy, or the stages of sleep, but realize we're this unchanging essence that transcends all these different changing states. And so these koshas, as you're saying, are a way of meeting each of these levels of what we would call identification with the body, the senses, the thoughts, the emotions, and this particular thought, which is the most highly believed uh, thought in the world, which is the, the I, the sense of being a separate self. And we're learning to recognize that the personality, the sense of self is actually a construct that we can experience, but recognize this is not the full story. We are this unchanging essence that then we land in and can really feel our interconnectedness with all of life and realize this is the essence that everything is made out of. So then I'm, I'm meeting you or I'm meeting my wife or I'm meeting the, the tree in front of me from that underlying essence that unifies us, but still appreciating the difference of a different tree, a maple from an oak, and you from my wife. I don't confuse you with my wife. I don't think she'd like that very much. (laughs) Um, So I, I think, as you were saying, this is a really somatic experiencing that we're having here. It's not an intellectual um, understanding, although our mind is being brought along uh, as being informed as one of my early teachers said the body actually informs the mind. The mind, in a way, is holding on to past or future, but it doesn't know the immediacy of the moment. It's the body that then helps the mind understand these deeper realizations that we come to through these meditation inquiries. And so it's a it's a wonderful journey that we're really taking for ourselves we're not buying into a whole new set of beliefs we're really seeing is this true let me make the experiment and find out for myself yeah. uh, Richard that's just beautiful and I mean a number of things are triggered with me 
first of all is, you know, in so many ways, one of the reasons we suffer, to paraphrase what you were, were saying, is that we just have a wild case of mistaken identity. You know, yeah. we feel that it's not, as I playfully say, it's not toys are us, it's forms are us. Yeah. Um, and whether it's outer body form or gross, or, you know, gross outer body or subtly um, emotional um, thinking body all the way down to the formlessness, it's really, it's differentiating from, not dissociating from, that, that's the near enemy of the, the spiritual journey is that you're not healthfully um, letting go of it. You know, you're sometimes people that feel like they have to just somehow um, get rid of these outer forms. Well, it's really just a relationship and it needs to be altered in a deeper allegiance to the well, proper. I think what we're, yeah, I think what we're doing is we're studying how all these different aspects of our body and their and our mind function. So as you say, like the, the I-ness that we feel as a separate sense of self, that's a function. And we can learn to appreciate it, to feel it, but not get caught in it. And as you say, we're not dissociating. I think of dissociation as a natural defense when we're overwhelmed by information. We'll separate it from it to survive through the moment and then come back and digest it when we're in a safe environment. We're learning in meditation and yoga nidra and these other forms of meditation to feel what we're experiencing. And in that willingness to really feel it and be with it and not try to change it, we, there's a natural process of integration and then what I call disidentification, where yeah. the emotion is still there, but I know that I'm more than it and I'm not separating from it but I'm yeah. realizing I'm much more than it. I was here before it came, I'm here during it, and I'm here after it goes. Yeah, exactly. And what we can do, what I do with these, Richard, that I, that I find quite compelling is you can create a kind of death pole, you know, because I teach a lot of Bardo's preparation for death. And one of the things I'm doing these days is actually creating a pole for um, participants where I say, well, let's let's just ask ourselves a couple of very honest questions here. Mm -hmm. um, to what to what extent do you identify and feed your outer body? How uh, how important is appearance and clothing and form in your cars? Now, how how much do you invest in that portfolio? And then we get more subtle. Okay, how much do you invest in your ideologies and your beliefs and your philosophies and your thinking? Because that's maybe a, a subtle level of identification, but it still um, can be indicative of being stuck in some of these more refined levels of form. And then finally, of course, to what extent do you identify and how important is it to you to remain in silence and stillness and how comfortable are you with space? And in so doing, if we take this kind of poll and we're very honest with ourselves and we realize the checklist is still very much loaded with your outer um, portfolio, your bank account, your house, your appearance, your body, then unfortunately, when nature introduces to yourself, I sometimes talk about um, death these days, Richard, as a wrathful form of liberation. It's just death is simply slamming you into yourself. And of course, if you already have differentiated from let go of or die to these false selves, then of course, death is nothing. It's just a, basically a a release of these false levels of identification. And so by taking this poll, you can start to realize, hey, you know, I'm going to be okay when I die because I'm not feeding these outer bodies. I'm not even stuffing and gorging myself and getting fat with ideologies and belief systems. 
And then, of course, here comes all the spiritual traps, right? Spiritual materialism and all these kind of subtle places where we think as spiritual practitioners we're somehow transcending all these. Um, and you know, we can somewhat humbly come to realize that even there we're getting stuck. But I wanted, I also wanted to, to uh, ping on a couple of things that you said here when you're talking about um, this idea of, you know, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling whatever. To me, this points to the um, utter immediacy of self-reference, how quickly the mind appropriates experience and, and refers it to the center of gravity, which of course it can never locate. And it's completely analogous to me that, to this assumption we make, this unquestioned kind of colloquialism or uh, phraseology that we have when we say things in relationship to the weather, like, oh, it's hot outside, it's cold, it's windy, it's rainy. Well, no, it isn't. Where's the reference? Where, where's the it? There's, mm -hmm. just, there's just this thing we call heat. There's just this thing we call rain. And in exactly the same way, we say, I am angry. Well, no, you're not. That's an unexamined way um, that really reveals upon examination the immediacy of this self-referencing tendency, this kind of default you're, mode, default mode network that we have. And then you're, and you're, you're reminding me of a book called The Mind's Pass by Gazeniga, who the, neuro, the neuroscientist. The neuroscientist who made yeah, this Michael. wonderful statement. He says the I thought always comes late to the dinner table and the, <laughs> the research that's been done, how we have a perception, the mind registers it through the five senses, stores it, um, analyzes it, creates an action that the body picks up with reference to it. And then three to 500 milliseconds, as the research right. shows, the I thought comes in and says, I'm having this perception. It's always late to the dinner table. And I love how these practices actually slow everything down. And we can see actually the I thought coming in and wrapping around whatever's present and identifying it? with it. And in that moment, we can see how it is just a function that that's its job. Yeah, and we don't have to get caught in it. We can still let it do its job, but we don't have to get caught in it. Yeah, well, on one level, you know, Richard, as you know, um, ego has a very noble place in the evolutionary trajectory. You know, if we didn't, if we didn't have a sense of relative self, if we didn't have fear, we wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about the nature of the self and the nature of the fear. You know, we, we'd be uh, we'd be a chicken McNugget on the Serengeti. We would never have gotten to this point, and so. By understanding, again, this integral relationship to the sense of self, however temporary and fallacious it may ultimately be, without these relative dimensions, um, we wouldn't be able to question what we need to do to transcend them. And so perfectly what you said here is that this idea that the scientists, and this is where I love, as you do, the great contributions of Western neuroscience, that the self isn't a self, it's really a process of selfing. It's an, an active construct that's under constant revision and constant construction. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in the, you know, the, the idea that we live, I, I've read some studies, as much as a half second in the past. It takes, you know, and neurologically, that's a tremendous amount of time yes. where from the, from the receipt of sensory data to the actual um, aha moment when we say uh, you know, something like, I see, a half second in neurological time is infinity. And during that half second, we co-create, we co-construct not only our sense of self, selfing, 
but by immediate implication, othering. And so duality is constantly fractured with this constant reference to self. And to me, I, I find this so incredibly important because the natural state, as you said at the outset, is in fact one of non-duality. And, and I want to get back to what that really means because it's key to what you're talking about. And so if, if non-duality, unity, is in fact the natural state, then it becomes extraordinarily interesting, and this is what the sciences can help us with, to discover these processes that then fracture, bifurcate, split the world into self and other, and do it not in some kind of primordial bang when we we're born, but actually do it moment to moment to moment as, as we split the world into self and other, um, and then suffer as a, as a consequence of that. And so, um, you know, to me, it's like, I completely, I'm sitting here nodding my head with everything that you say, you know, that, mm-hmm. that fundamentally healing the split is one of dropping down into the wisdom of the body, um, letting the journey, sometimes I, I think of the spiritual path as this kind of labyrinth into the center of ourselves, and that fundamentally that's where the body can wake us up, because the body knows, there's, you know, as it says in my tradition, in the Hevajra Tantra, wisdom is in the body. And uh, this dovetails back to what we were talking about earlier about this journey of waking down. It's already, the body already knows. The subtle body is within us. That's what we inhabit when we sleep. The very subtle body is even um, deeper within us. That's what we reside and abide in in deep dreamless sleep. Um, And I love this, Richard, because then to me, it it, it makes the journey less a transcendent one, but almost more a subscendent one that we don't, the only thing we fundamentally have to do is just relax, drop into the very matrix of who we already are, and everything we could possibly be looking for is already within. Well, I think that's, uh, there are two takeaways I've heard in the last little while as you've been speaking. One is, as we really embody and understand this, not intellectually, but as our lived experience, we do rest back more and more. Our, Our job then is to simply relax and let go understanding that deep within us is an intelligence that is responding in each moment and our job is to really rest with that and move with it versus we think we're in control but in fact all the research shows hey the the movements that are happening and the decisions have made long before the i thought comes in and says i'm making this decision so that was one we're learning how to really rest back and let go And the other one was to cycle back a little bit to when you were talking about death. I think, as you said, we're we're learning at subtler and subtler ways in this disidentification process to relax, let go, and navigate these changing states of consciousness that when we're awake can feel fairly gross, but when we go to sleep, we can get into subtler and subtler realms of appreciation. So I think of these practices of... Uh, waking yoga and sleep yoga as preparation for death when we're learning to let go in each moment and realize in each moment we can really feel a sense of deep rest, deep relaxation, deep safety. Whereas I find so many people are are vigilant. They're they're scared to let go at all because bad things are going to happen. I find just the opposite. The more that I let go and appreciate these subtle movements, I realize there's something innate here that's very trustworthy 
keeps me in that sense of connectedness. And as you say, it's not a transcendence. It's a it's a lived experience here on earth while I'm in my body in the midst of my experiences. And that was a differentiating factor, actually, to I had two very high, very extraordinary Advaitic teachers from India, and they both kind of intimated one directly, very directly, and the other intimating kind of indirectly that if I really wanted to realize this understanding, I really needed to leave my family, my job, check into a monastery to get the subtleties. Otherwise, I would miss them in the midst of the gross kind of movements of worldly life. But my Kashmiri teacher, his main premise was, no, you're going to realize this. You're going to realize it in the midst of worldly life. That's really where the rubber meets the road. And I subsequently really shifted all of my interest into these more non-dual Kashmiri teachings, which are really worldly. We're, We're learning how to embody in the world while we're in the world, but learning to navigate subtler and subtler realms without getting identified in them. And perhaps perhaps this lifetime, the most subtle realm would, will be as we're letting go into death and meeting the different experiences that are going to be happening there as our five senses drop away and we're meeting ever subtler levels of uh energy we might say where we've learned how not to get caught in them while we've been alive now we can go into this next grand adventure of called death yeah beautiful yeah i mean and and i really have always maintained that um certainly my experience you know 40 plus years of stumbling and tripling tripping along my own path i've discovered that really the path is just death in slow motion it's it's (laughs) a, a kind of a titration of this release that is fundamentally forced upon us in non-negotiable, uncompromising terms when we die. And so to me, this is the great beauty of, of these nocturnal practices, which in many ways in my cartography culminate in the in the Bardo Yoga. Um, it says we're fundamentally when we die in a completely analogous but microcosmic way, when we fall into deep dreamless sleep every night, we're letting go into who we really are. And, and if we understand that, I mean, Oh my goodness, Richard, does this not change the way we relate to old age, sickness, and death? Instead of looking down with despair as, as our body is crumbling beneath us and we're falling apart, we actually look down in kind of wonder and amazement, saying, Looking what look at what nature is showing me here. Nature is teaching me how to let go. And if we understand that we celebrate the dissolution of outer form, because it's you know, it's a gentle invitation starting after age 24 or so that eventually gets a little bit more forceful as we age. And, and if we catch the lesson before we're forced to, then we can do the single most important thing that constitutes not only a good death, but I would say the spiritual path altogether, which is what you said. It's just fundamentally opening and relaxing into who we really are. And I want to dovetail this back in to our listeners because this is precisely the journey that we take every night. Um, it is reiterated in this microcosmic form as we go from growth identification and the waking state to the subtle dreaming state, and then to obviously the, the, the bandwidths of a very, very subtle formless body that we experience in the deep dreamless state. And so by preparing for this every single night, we will in fact be preparing for what the Tibetans refer to as the dream at the end of time, which is, is the death process. 
And so the other thing I wanted to dovetail back in, Richard, that I absolutely agree with you wholeheartedly is this um, beautiful teaching that you received from your second um, teacher about finding spirit in form, finding um, the divine in the worldly, because it's, it's such a common misunderstanding. And I can understand it completely at an at a initial kind of provisional level to feel that the only way we can access these states is through asceticism and through complete retreat. I think there is some truth to that provisionally. But um, to me, it's exactly what you say, that fundamentally, um, if we can't find it in the world, in the world of form, we're, our, our, you know, our realization will be essentially incomplete. Um, well, I, so I think of our, our daily meditation practice, uh, retreat practice, it's time when we're not distracted so much by the daily activities where we can learn to surf these subtler and subtler states of consciousness. And then, as I was saying earlier, take it for a test drive when we leave retreat. And sometimes on long 10-day silent retreats, I actually ask people to go into town. Yeah. Can you maintain this quality of presence that you've been able to nourish while you've been in silent retreat? Now I want you to go down in the middle of town and walk around, even possibly walk into a shop, have some conversations. Can you still maintain it so that people can see there is a transition here from retreat to taking it for a drive in the world and making that that deep integration as well as when we do these nocturnal ex explorations during retreat or in our practices where we're actually learning how to go into dreamless sleep and learning to navigate what we might call the void but staying present in the midst of no content so i love all these ways we can take these very uh, deep and extraordinary practices, but we, but as you're saying and agreeing with me, how do we take them into our daily life? Because that's where the rubber really does meet the road. Yeah, it's very much so. You know, in, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition, they refer to this as the marketplace test. That uh, you know, if you get too addicted and too juicy in your um, meditative absorptions, and you step out into the marketplace um, and are thrown. Um, off that kind of title. Oh, one, of my, one of my teachers so aptly said, he said, I thought I was so enlightened until I went finally home and visited my mom again. <laughs> Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Yeah, there's the litmus test. And, and you know what we do? I don't, I don't want to put moms down, but it is right. a test when we go into our relationships. That's where we really can explore how, how well do we embody this understanding. Exactly. And one of the things that I do in, in my Bardo retreat programs that um, is an elaboration of a little-known set of practices in, in fact, Bardo Yoga and Mahamudra, or what are referred to as these incredibly provocative reverse meditations. And these are really powerful, Richard, because um, what we do under these with these practices, there's a number of different examples, but the fundamental idea is to um, bring about, artificially at first, of course, um, unwanted circumstance, unwanted experiences, um, and really create environmental situations that are indeed the reverse of what we usually think of as the meditative state. And so we do practices like voluntarily bringing pain into our meditation. Um, sometimes I'll bombard people with um, speakers and cacophony with noise. 
another classic meditation is sitting and, and actually trying to make your my, uh, mind as wild and crazy as you possibly can. And all the while holding it within this kind of sanctuary of sanity, finding um, through these practices, the stillness and motion, finding the silence and the noise. And until you get to the point where you realize that, that there's no difference between stillness and motion and silence and noise. And this again, harks back to the, to the kind of the non-dual um, theme that we've been circumambulating from the outset. And so maybe let's, let's get to that a little bit more directly then, because this is a, such a common term in the spiritual business, along with enlightenment and waking up. But it's pretty opaque for a lot of people. I mean, what, what does non-duality really mean? And so I want to put that question to you as a seed, um, because really it, it, it's the essence of the whole shebang. So yeah. let's unpack this one a little bit. Well, just before I do that, just touching back on what you said as part of the yoga nidra practice, and people have often asked me, why are you asking me to invite in these very negative or disruptive states because we do that we invite in all the opposites and i'm saying you're learning how to surf them and maintain that deep equanimity in the midst of these disturbing states of consciousness so that when you go back into the world you're you're realizing you can navigate any difficult circumstance no matter how it comes so i i love that term reverse meditations because we're doing that as well in the yoga nidra meditations like uh, creating sense of pain in the body discomfort bringing in destructive emotions or as in the yoga tradition as in the buddhist tradition meditating in the graveyards and inviting right. in these kinds of yeah. scenes yeah these are, these are let me just say one thing around that um richard if i might these are you know just to put an exclamation point on this, because as you just suggested, these are incredibly important ways to expand our meditation. One of the things I, I, I um, frequently riff on these days is that, you know, we have a tendency as, as spiritual practitioners to make our meditation too precious. You know, mm -hmm. we can we can attain exalted states of mind if the sun is shining and our belly is full and our life is great. <laughs> but what happens when we stub our toe or our, or our partner dumps us or we get cancer or we're about to die? And so. Um, I like to induce and stretch, again, using the play of yoga to stretch the mind into um, domains, not just the nocturnal states, but all states, so that you develop this kind of industrial strength meditation that is not adversely affected by old age, sickness, and death, that can withstand the onslaught of these unwanted experiences. And so I'm actually drafting an article um, tentatively entitled, Burn Your Shrine Room. Um, mm -hmm. Which means, you know, we're and, and for me, it, it's really been this very similar kind of um, kind of iteration where I figured, well, you know, I just got to get home, you know, to get into my shrine room and to sit down to meditate. And now I'm finding myself less and less coming back to my shrine. I'm I'm more sitting in my car at the stoplight and saying, okay, let's do a one breath meditation here, or putting the TV on pause when I'm watching news and say, let's take a few seconds to meditate here. Um, so that eventually, yes, as important as meditation is on the cushion and in the shrine room, um, I, I'm sure you understand. I'm not dis dissing that at right. all. It's it's incubator phase practice, and we can't live our lives in an incubator. We have to grow up and grow out. And sometimes, in fact, even in the traditions, Pato Rinpoche, my teacher Kempo Rinpoche, would often say things like, you know, you nurture your meditation by destroying it. 
yes. nurture it by expanding the boundaries and bringing these unwanted circumstances into your life so that then when you get off the cushion out of your shrine room in a certain real way, and this is what I discovered when I came out of my three-year retreat, is in a very real way, I was given the tools to make my life a retreat. I entered lifetime retreat within the context of life. And the reason I'm riffing on this and then I'll pause is this is precisely what feeds my passion for these nocturnal meditations because they are another example or instantiation of this kind of stretching the mind into all states. And so it turns out to be this archetype that I love what you're elaborating on here and that you're doing with your own work that why not make, you know, why not make your entire life your spiritual practice? Why not take everything you've learned in the sanctuary of silence and stillness and now shatter that incubator and go fearlessly into the world? And so I really appreciate what you're saying around all this. And I just wanted to put an exclamation point on it because I think. Well, I think what you're describing, I call uh, 365, 24-7 meditation. <laughs> it's it's every day, all day long. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let, let I cut you off, my friend. Let, let's come back to this core um, topic of non-duality and, and what that means to you, how it has informed you as a teacher and also as a practitioner. I think at a very practical level, I mean, non-dual means not two. It doesn't mean one because one is still a concept that the mind can kind of wrap itself around and create an image of. It means not two. And it really is um, enabling us to feel, is there an underlying essence, we would say, that we've all come out of? And if we look at every religious and spiritual tradition in the world, they're all trying to answer these fundamental questions uh, who am I? What is all of this? And how did this all come about? And, you know, they all have their creation stories and creation myths, but they all agree somehow there is manifestation that came out of something. And I call it the great mystery. And for me, what non-dual uh, meditation is asking us to do is ask this question is there a fundamental essence that we can feel that underlies all of our changing states of consciousness and that as we really if it's so awaken it and restore it because i think of it as waking up in a way of vestigial organ that's been there but lying dormant in most of us Meditation, as they say, makes us accident-prone to have that awakening. But I've met people who have just been walking down the beach, and all of a sudden it, it awakens. But where we really do feel an underlying essence, that then when I start to look at the objects around me, it, they become more, I would call, transparent, that I'm feeling that underlying essence that everything is made out of. And at a very pragmatic level i find this in my everyday life as i go about experiencing this that i meet a tree i meet another person as that essence so it's not a face-to-face -face encounter it's an essence to essence wow. on which the personalities are superimposed 
So in a way, there are two meetings going on from this underlying essence that's not separate, not two, and then appreciating the differences of the different personality or person I'm with. But I, I really find this has had a most immense impact on my own personal life in my relationships where, say, with my wife or my most intimate friends, by staying connected to that essence, I realize the only time that conflict can really arise is when I begin to separate from it. I begin to forget it, and I make the other into a separate. If I don't make the other into only a separate, and I keep feeling that underlying essence that's not two, that they're made out of and I'm made out of, it keeps me in basically an inquiry of love. So I might have a, a moment of irritation or difference, but it keeps me in the inquiry with the other person at a very practical level. What I mean by that is I'll keep asking them, can you say more about that? And would you like to hear more about what I'm experiencing? So we stay in conversation that gives us a sense of connection. And I realize out of that remaining not to, staying connected at that deeper level, solutions come. Um, understandings come that help us resolve whatever the issue that was causing irritation or what I've come to appreciate, it allows me to experience more the differences and honor them and appreciate them and that we can have different views, but it doesn't need to lead to conflict or um, we might say violence or war, which we see so prevalent both in the world around us and in relationships. So I, I find it as a very um, helpful understanding that enables us to navigate life at the very fundamental relationship aspects and we stay connected to ourself and we don't fall prey to what happens when we start to believe this perception of separation you know i'm reminded there's a beautiful statement from the bridha arankya upanishad and it says whenever we separate or believe in separation there will be anxiety and fear. Mm. And I love it because they're saying anxiety and fear then are the messengers that are helping us see where we're beginning to believe in separation. So it brings us back to inquire, which is what I do when I start to feel any kind of anxiety or fear. Where am I separating? Yeah. Where am I separating either inside myself or with the person in front of me? And when I can see that moment of separation and heal it, I'm back in relationship, both with myself and the person in front of me. Beautiful. Yeah. And again, wow. What um, what a, a practical way to alter our relationship to what I sometimes argue is the primordial emotion of samsara which in fact is fear i mean you, you, you we often talk about how ignorance is the origin of the confused dualistic stance but um that's a pretty insidious beast you know we don't we don't often talk about um being uh, victims of ignorance but i frequently think that fear is the act effective expression of that ignorance and so what you're saying um richard is 
I think extraordinarily helpful because certainly my experience when we start doing really deep spiritual practice um, underneath the illusion that we have it together in our surface gyrations and what we call our everyday life underneath it all is this I think extraordinarily sophisticated um, avoidance strategy to avoid the fear of our inherent egolessness to avoid the fear of um, non-duality which from an egoic point of view is registered as fundamentally really the fear of death and so for me and I'm curious if this has been your experience in retreat as well um, Richard that when I start to feel fear in deep meditation retreat, to me, it's, it's actually a, a good sign. It's a, it's a, a near friend where I can um, realize with this deeper understanding that perhaps I'm starting to approximate the truth. Perhaps I'm starting I, I to... Think of, uh, yeah, I think of fear and anxiety, these different states as signal flares that the body is sending up to help us see subtle ways that we're separating and to look at those and heal the sense of separation, then the anxiety, the fear has served its purpose. It goes on its way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing you said that I want to, I want to put a, um, maybe a little bit of a, an amendment to, or and see how this um, resonates with your experience sure. is that on one level, and this completely relates to what in the Bardo teachings is, is talked about is um, the Bardo of becoming, which is what you were alluding to earlier, that um, out of this, w whatever you want to refer to it, um, the void, emptiness, nature of mind, out of this um, kind of arises this uh, crystallization, this expression, this process of becoming um, that I think is extraordinarily important to understand. But I also, when I reflect on it deeper, and I'm curious if this resonates with you, is as important as that is, I still find it somewhat a relative description because um, in the deepest non-dual um, teachings of, of like Dzogchen and, and uh, Shaiva Tantra, even the process of becoming is illusory, that that, that in itself can defer subtly the utter immediacy of the awakened state. Well, it, it touches two things for me. One is that meditation is helping us to understand these different, I call them functions, how uh, the mind has been assembled with the I thought in such a way to create uh, senses of separation. So we're not trying to destroy that. That's a function. It, as you said, has a job that enables us to have a conversation and to to make an automobile or a computer or build a house that other animals can't. So we appreciate how the mind, the senses, and the functioning of the I thought can help create separation where it doesn't ultimately exist. So we mm -hmm. can allow that function to continue as we're mining and feeling this underlying essence that is not two and not separate. And, and then your statement about becoming reminds me when I first met my, I'll call my essential spiritual teacher, and I told him why I had come and, you know, my desire was really awakening. And he said, everything that has brought you here is now going to be the very thing that takes you away. <laughs> and as I probed that and looked at my deep, 
moments of meditation, I saw that my intention to awaken, all the ways that I had set up subtle mechanisms of striving to attain or to become something were driving forces that led me to that moment. But as he said, now they were the very forces in the psyche that I was learning how to recognize and let go, let them be here. Striving is still part of the body, mind, and life. But in meditation, there's a moment where we recognize the very movement of becoming is taking us away from what we truly are. And I I find in that moment of either in dreamless sleep or in very deep meditation where we've let go of all the comings and goings and there is a deep stillness, even I've come to appreciate the movement of self-awareness, awareness awake or aware of itself is still a subtle barrier. Mm-hmm. There's something else I call it the mystery that's calling me into it. And my job then in that moment is to see all these movements, simply recognizing them and saying, you're welcome to be here. And I've I've likened it to falling asleep at night. I have no idea how to fall asleep. But if I let go and say to myself, I'm ready, take me. It happens automatically. And I think in this moment of deep meditation, I feel something here. I I feel it from behind myself, but I'm falling into it and really letting go even of the sense of self-awareness and all sense of self. And I feel like when we return home, like perhaps it will be in death, we go really home we fall into this that we look forward to in dreamless sleep, actually. And when we come back, when we reawaken, I feel like we're impregnated with this peace that path us all understanding that is our true home place that we can begin to weave that fragrance into the midst of our daily life. Yeah, that's just beautiful. And gosh, several things come to mind here. And one, one of them will be framed in a question for you. But it reminds me of what um, Trungpa Rinpoche once said very compellingly when he said, there's, you know, there's no such thing as an underdeveloped moment, um, that everything is, is, you know, again, utterly complete. Yes. Um, as, as it's referred to in, in the Dzogchen, literally the great completion teachings that, that uh, fundamentally right here, right now, um, everything we have is completely available to us. And, and I know similar spirit in, in the tantric teachings, they also say, um, and I'm hovering on this a little bit because I, I don't think this cannot be overstated because it instills, I think, with a, a deep comprehension and then um, experience of this, the again, the utter immediacy of the entire affair, that there's no such thing also as a, as a negative emotion. There's no such thing as a negative state of mind. There's fundamentally just lack of recognition. Mm-hmm. To me, that that I, I find to be the the sum of the uh, entire affair is that if we simply open the aperture of our awareness, which again is what the nocturnal meditations invite for me, um, opening the aperture so that we're not just exclusively letting in the light from the waking state, but now we're letting in the the, aper- the light because the aperture is big enough. To the to the dreaming mind and into the dim, uh, deep dreamless state, um, but it empowers 
the the fruitional quality that is characteristic of certainly Tibetan tantric Buddhism, and that's why it's called the fruitional vehicle. That it's it's already always already utterly completely present. But with this said, Roger, and I think this is important. You're hinting at it, and I suspect the teaching your the teacher you're referring to is Jean Klein. Um, it is. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, with this in mind, what therefore is the role of effort? I mean, where where does effort lie when we start entering um, these really subtle states that Jean was, um, I think, beautifully kind of pointing out to you? The way that I would say it is, when we take ourselves to be separate, and we start to awaken this longing to come back to something we don't understand, as I did in 1970, as you did when you looked at TM some longing arises in it. But as long as we take ourselves to be a separate individual, we feel ourselves as a separate doer. And then we fall into a, an, an efforting. And that efforting, you know, takes us to the mat, takes us to learn different practices, to eat a certain way, to let go of certain things in our life that have now no longer serving us. And so it does feel a sense of effort along the way, but there comes a moment where we cross a threshold and we realize the very thing that we've been searching for, putting the effort in to find, has always been here. And in that immediacy of awakening, for me, I realized, oh, I've always known this. It was so simple, I kept dismissing it. And as I fell into it, all sense of effort fell away and and then i have now a more poetic way of talking about it which is i think it's all grace uh-huh. grace totally. gives us a sense of separation grace gives us the longing to come back home grace initiates the sense of effort but in the end grace pushes us over into our true nature and we realize it's all been grace from the very beginning <laughs> it was just our misperception that we thought ourselves as a separate doer who was doing this and actually it's the underlying mystery that has been creating its own sense of separation from itself and wanting to heal that sense of separation back into itself and come home and it's all grace and even the effort now is recognized that it was effortless it didn't belong to anybody yes yeah that's just lovely and, and then within that, gosh, uh, I digested the beauty of what you were sharing here, um, Richard, but within that context, what is the role of uh, bhakti yoga or devotion? What, what is the, because in my, in my personal path, um, devotion, which is really using the most powerful force in the universe, which is love for the purposes of spiritual awakening, devotion has been... Um, everything. Um, and I'm wondering, would you associate devotion synonymously with grace? I, I, maybe it's silly to even ask that question. I, I think of grace as love incarnate, because mm-hmm. even, you know, in, you know, we have these different paths, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, karma yoga, yani yoga. So take yani, the, the path of wisdom ultimately leaves one right into the heart. Uh, 
karma yoga doing service selflessly relieves us right back into the heart. If we really stay in the heart in devotional yoga, bhakti yoga, we come and awaken the wisdom body. So I, I, I think it's the awakening ultimately of the entire uh, essence that, that all these paths come together. And for me, what I've come to realize is in in not being separate from everything around me, if there's the iota of suffering somewhere, I'm still suffering. And I realize that becomes the bodhisattva vow. It's not I vow to heal the suffering of everyone around me. I'm vowing to heal my suffering, that anybody who's suffering is still myself suffering. And so I like to say the Buddha was one of the most selfish people who ever walked the face of the earth because he didn't see anybody but himself. Yeah. <laughs> and in that bodhisattva vow, he realizes until everyone around me is no longer suffering, I'm still suffering. So yeah. Yeah. I feel in the end, it, it is just love, devotion, but it does awaken the wisdom body and the selfless service body. And I realize then it's not I'm doing this selfless service. It's just selfless service is wanting to do itself. There's nobody doing it. It's just an effortless um, kind of beingness that, that just sprouts naturally as we do these practices and have these different understandings that awaken. We're, we're becoming more and more thy will, not my will and there's that deep surrendering then i find in just a quality of love and well-being and it is all devotion in the end as far as i'm concerned and then even that word disappears and we're just waking up in the morning saying okay what are we doing today yeah yeah or what or what is the world inviting me to do you know it's like this is beautiful flip of no, um, not what am I going to do with my day or with my life, but what is life going what to do me? with me? Yeah, how is it going to speak through me? And so how do we as Westerners, um, Richard, this is a, I, I could not agree more wholeheartedly with what you're saying, but as you painfully know in the Western world, um, we're not human beings, we're human doings. We're, we're defined not by what we are, by what we do. And so these incredibly beautiful fruitional non-dual teachings um, are challenging to land um, on Western ears because we've been so enculturated in this um, active laziness, this insatiable busyness, and, and the, the irreducible instructions to just open and relax is just sometimes such an incredulous one that it, it's painful to realize that in some ways it's too, too obvious and too simple. So how do you work with your students um, in terms of inculcating this type of beauty, this view, um, and then fundamentally allowing them to taste it and experience it for themselves. I well, suspect. I'd say, it's yeah, I'd say, first of all, like you, I'm a yogi. I take the long view. You know, I think everybody's striving for happiness, but some people are still walking into the woods trying to find it, and they haven't come out the other side from all the doing so there we get identified with the doings thinking they're going to bring a certain quality of happiness when that is done enough i trust 
that we'll start searching in places we hadn't searched for before. And I woke into the yoga tradition. You woke into the Buddhist tradition. We'll each have our way of, you know, walking out of the woods. But I think, you know, to answer your question simply, the way that I would say I hope that I'm inculcating my students into these kind of inquiries is just through my very presence. That if we're embodying it, the effortlessness have gone out of it. And I've actually, when I've been sitting, minding my own business at a conference or one time it was on the beach, somebody came up, you know, nobody I knew. They just came up, sat down next to me and said, I don't know what you've got, but how do I get it? (laughs) And I, I think there is a moment where there's a quality of presence that we start to embody that. We are like logs on fire and people who are more soggy want to get around us and dry out and catch on fire. And then I think the practices in a way become excuses or doings that we do while we're drying out until we catch on fire. And I, I think they help us dry out, no, no, no doubt. But ultimately, it's that quality of being as you say we're human beings we're not human doings where we're continuing to do i mean i'm all over the world doing all sorts of things but as i long time recognized if i keep asking myself moment to moment all day long where am i the only answer i can give is i'm right here and it's now So the body and the mind thinks it's going somewhere, but I realize we haven't gone anywhere since we we were born. (laughs) We've been in the same place. Yeah. And it brings that that deep sense of peace that the doing is ultimately unimportant. It is the beingness that it is why I think we've been so aptly called human beings, not human doings. Yeah, it's beautiful. And and I have to interject here and, in our tradition, the Buddhist tradition, um, Richard, they talk, um, I think, very compellingly about what I, I have come to call a, a Gnostic pedagogy, which is what's referred to as the three teaching tools or the three prajnas, hearing, contemplating, meditating, um, three stages of um, the metaphor. And again, I, I mentioned this because it dovetails beautifully to what we were talking about before and exactly what you're talking about now of, you know, ingest digest, metabolize the teaching mm-hmm. so, that, so that they fundamentally, quite literally, not metaphorically, they quite literally become you. Yes. And, and then you can feel it. It's like exactly like you're saying, like in my tradition, you know, it's Holiness 16th Karmapa, um, very, very, very highly realized being Buddha, um, who virtually never really taught, never really wrote anything. He didn't have to. It's like everywhere he went, he was like this amazing light bulb or this, you know, the sun. And his mere presence was radically transforming. And, and I, I do want to bring this up for our listeners because when we're working with really intense situations, um, in particular old age, sickness, and death, um, one of the most important things we can do is not come in with our agendas, not come in with our um perhaps unconscious urges to convert people to our spiritual approaches towards death. But I have found that the most important thing one can do is bring the stability of body-mind brought about through this process of ingestion, digestion, 
and metabolism to simply just be there. Just your mere presence um, will be enough to transform the environment. And, and again, that's also incredibly elegant because it really shows the fruition yet again that on the highest levels, you do not have to utter a word. You do not have to open your mouth. You simply have to um, you know, open your heart, you could say, and just let this natural light um, radiate. And then it's, it's magnetizing. It's like you know, the Tibetan name for the, His Holiness Dalai Lama is Kundun, which literally means presence. Mm -hmm. And that's why people are attracted to beings that are so awake, because um, on one level, they represent um, their own potentialities. And we um, want to be around that kind of um, light of awareness. And so it's a beautiful way to come full circle to realize that fundamentally we have to open, relax, wake down into this already luminous, awakened body. And uh, you know, then everything that we could possibly have and hope for or share with others is just immediately right there for us. So, yeah, and you remind me then of the practicalities of it is the teachings that offer us these exquisite practices and these maps of consciousness that we're learning to navigate that help us see where we're going and where we've been and where we are. But then the support of some kind of sangha of like-minded people that when we're around them, we can really grow that sense of presence and they're as interested in the inquiry as we are and then the third is finding some spiritual mentor who's walking ahead of us who can help show us the path and the and the way that ultimately as my teacher so beautifully said then make it your own and as the buddha said at what at the end of his life i've shown you the way now be a light unto yourself yeah exactly exactly you know the best thing we can do as uh, anybody as a spiritual teacher is put ourselves out of business and allow exactly. allow people to um, be equipped with you know a flashlight or two and, and a few things put into their backpack um, doctrinally well, and, and through practices and then and then we become our own meditation instructors we become well our it, own it, it gives me the the metaphor as you were saying that which is we're putting our eye out of business yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and 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 Again, for our listeners, this is is uh, doubly important with the nocturnal practices. Um, and really, again, the nocturnal practices are just a way to talk about the descent into subtle practices. So when we talk about the nocturnal meditations, we're, we're fundamentally just talking about nocturnal or, or subtle meditations, of which, of course, there are daily or diurnal correlates. So as you were talking about, everything that we can experience in the nighttime mind we have immediate access to in the daytime arena. Um, there are daily practices that are utterly supportive of the nocturnal journey. Um, but when we go into the night in particular, um, nobody knows our sleep patterns better than we do. Nobody knows our idiosyncrasies and our quirks. And so we have to become our own meditation instructors. And so we um, equip ourselves with some teachings. And then as with any trip, the greatest discoveries and joys and delights take place when we go off on our own and maybe we get lost and we discover something that we would never have seen otherwise. And we simply have the confidence given to us by these great wisdom traditions to realize that you know, we fundamentally can face, handle anything that arises. Um, and then it really just, just 
become the the grand play, the the adventure that it really fundamentally is. So it's a great way to come full circle and tie it back into our um, nighttime stuff. So um, Richard, as we start to close this up, and oh my gosh, I could talk to you for hours. Um, any any final statements um, that you want to share with us, and then I, I want to provide a very specific opportunity. Or how people well, can learn more about you. We're talking about nocturnal meditations. One of the things I'm aware is if, if we're interested and we have that ability to find enough rest, and I love it when we're on retreat because we are getting the rest we need. We're doing lots of meditation and we open up the ability to be awake while we're asleep at night. Whereas when we're in our normal everyday life, and life is so intense that. Many people then, when they try to do nocturnal awakeful lucidity, they can't. But when we can, we can realize when we're lucid in a dream, it's a dream. We can invite in our worst nightmare, our worst emotion, and realize it's just a dream. And what I've come to appreciate then is dreaming is no different from waking. The, the waking states that I'm experiencing are much like the dream states. At one level, they can feel very real, and so I don't want to dismiss them as unreal, but ultimately, they're just dreams that we're having, and that ability to find ourselves as that lucidity of unchanging consciousness that we can then learn to navigate any of these states of consciousness, whether they're in the dream world, the nocturnal world, or in the waking world, becomes more and more one in the same. I, I have a difficult time now differentiating sleep from and dream from waking and waking states. They're just states that are arising, and here they are, and I'm meeting these. and. Yes, still I, this underlying essence. Yeah, beautiful. And, and you know, I, I often talk about um, the kind of code language that's associated with these nocturnal practices. You know, earlier I equated lucidity um, with awareness and, and whatnot. I also um, have now come to see exactly the way you're describing that dream is, is really code word for manifestation of consciousness, manifestation yes. of mind. And so in that regard, um, it's just really one dream after another. And, and, and we, for um, all kinds of reasons, largely based on fear, kind of impute and reify one state more um, real than the other, which, is, of course, is the waking state. But in your, what you're saying here, completely resonant with my experience, is this ultimate democracy, the, the, the complete great equivalence and equanimity of all states of mind. And this is, I think, incredibly important also in terms of the Bardo teachings themselves, because very often people question, oh, where am I going to go when I die, blah, blah, blah. Well, armed with these teachings, you realize you're just going from one dream to another. Um, they're just, everything is just a nested dream. And if you understand that, then um, you realize that what you can experience at death is something that you can and in fact are experiencing right now. And in the wisdom traditions, you know, my teacher, um, one of my inspiring teachers, um, Milarepa, um, sings, you know, not seeing um, day and dream as differing. This is as meditation as it can be. Not seeing the here and hereafter as differing. Mm -hmm. This is instruction as master as it can be. And, and this dovetails exactly what you said at the very outset, 
that armed with these teachings, we realize that that all these states eventually eventually have the same status, and therefore we don't have to have preference over one or the other. And yeah. to make it to make it so practical again, and that means any state of mind, uh, what we call anger, is is no more pure or impure than even what we would call um, kind of noble qualities of mind, compassion mm-hmm. and the like. That fundamentally, if we le- look through the display into the essence, we realize the same essential nature. Um, so it's a beautiful way to see how this otherwise somewhat um, spiritual theoretical view has immediate application to negotiating states of mind in a particular untoward, unwanted states and realizing that, as I mentioned earlier, there is no negative thought. There is no negative emotion. There's just inappropriate relationship. Um, and that's what we work with when we work with these practices. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm so glad you brought that together. Um, and so how can how can people learn more about you? Or actually before that, what what are you currently working on that we can look forward to? I mean, where where is your how is the universe speaking through you these days? Well, two or several exciting projects I just filmed are my level one training for IRS for people who want to learn it for themselves as well as if they want to learn how to teach it with groups or or work with with individuals. So that's now online through our website. And then um, I've recently filmed with Sounds True a 12-hour IRS, we might say, seminar where people who just want to learn it for themselves can learn these different ways of integrating these practices into their general life. So again, that'll be through my website and uh, retreats are really where I'm turning a lot of my attention to take people on these five, seven, 10 day silent retreats where we're really diving into these different delicious practices. And I've written a number of books. I've got one that I'm working on right now Tammy Simon from Sounds True calls it the big book of IRS, but it's basically this delineation of the 38 stage map that comes out of non-dual Kashmir Shaivism and the yoga teachings that integrate these 10 steps of IRS. But also in the book, I'm dovetailing the latest neuro uh, science research and research on how to use these things from everything from awakening to how do I get a good night's sleep and how do I navigate old age, sickness, death, pain, you know, these difficult um, circumstances that we all are going to face in one way or another during our life. And also I'm putting in chapters on these nocturnal sleep meditation, dreamless meditation, and how do we utilize these for enhancing our well-being as well as our understanding of this non-dual aspect we talked about where we don't see separation even as our mind and our senses are still perceiving it we're, we're feeling that underlying essence so a number of interesting projects yeah richard good for you and and the best way um outside of obviously just googling you it's really a, my my website, uh, the IRS Institute or irs.org. I have a nonprofit and here in San Rafael, but we train teachers all over the world, so people can access our teachings wherever they are, however they are. Yeah, wonderful. 
Well, on behalf of all the members of our, our little community, um, I'm sure I can speak with a, a common voice in saying thank you so much for what you're doing um, in the world. It, it really, it's an inspiration to me, I, I have to say, you know, the way you take these teachings and, and just so incredibly apply them into things like the military and, I mean, places where you would um, hardly think, talk about reverse meditations, you know, it's like, <laughs> you can hardly imagine anything like more anti-meditative than the military. And so um, what a tremendous contribution you've made. And I, I continue to look forward to all your work, Richard, and to further um, personal encounters with you. It's, it's certainly been one of the lights in my life. And so um, thank you so much, dear friend, for spending time with well, us. Well, thank um, you, Andrew. And I'm enjoying your your nocturnal meditations off that are coming out of your nightclub. What a wonderful uh, offering to folks. That's great. Well, we're having great fun. And, and again, a part of our charter is introducing um, our community to um, you and what you do and, and um, just letting people know the incredible resources we have at our disposal if we just open yeah. our eyes to it. So yeah. um, yes, pleasant dreams in, in the day and at night. And, well, thank uh, you. You too. <laughs> and to all your listeners. Okay, Richard, take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.